I want to begin by uh, thanking all of you that watch online. I get emails all the time from people around the world who appreciate that possibility. So thank you for watching. Uh, this is the 830 service of the North Richland Hills campus of the Hills. We have two other campuses at South Lake and West Fort Worth. And if you're ever in Tarrant County, we'd love for you to visit any of the three. I want to say thank you for your participation in Harvest. The first week, we already have reached 82% of our goal, which is typically what happens the first week of Harvest. Uh, as Manny mentioned, a lot of you weren't even here last week. You haven't given your Harvest offering yet. Please do that. And some of you might even be prompted to do more. But uh, I have confidence we will reach our goal. I'm excited about it. That money is supporting 26 missionaries and 11 church plants around the world. It's a big deal. So please be a part of it. That's why we're having this series called Unlimited. We're studying how a local cult became a global movement. And we're going to wrap up that series in just a moment. Now, most of you can surmise that I am a baby boomer. And so as a baby boomer, I have seen a lot of fads come and go. And yes, I have participated in my share of them. Let me give you some examples. This is a picture of me in college <laughs> wearing overalls. Now, you thought nobody wore overalls that were over the age of seven. But when I was in college, overalls were a popular fad. And we all wore them. Now, here's the reality. Most of us had never done 10 hours of manual labor in our lives. But we had our overalls. Thankfully, that fad quickly went away. And I have no clue where I could get a pair today. Uh, but that's not the only fad I got a part of. Because right after overalls came leisure suits. And there I am busting my moves on the floor. How many of you can also remember disco music, huh? Anybody have the 8-track of KC and the Sunshine Boys? Somebody explain to Manny what an 8-track is. So, disco and leisure suits were popular for a time, but that also passed. Uh, in the 80s, the popular thing was parachute pants. Now, I was in much better shape back then. But fortunately, that also passed. Here's the point. We all hear about these sweeping the nation, global sensation moments, but they hardly ever last, whether they are political movements or economic philosophies or even religions. Thousands of religions have come and gone. They were fads and they were short-lived. So we're asking the question, how did... A small Jewish cult become a global movement in just a few decades, and it's still around. In fact, 2,000 years later, it doesn't just exist, it is thriving around the world. And here's the thing, never had such a large assignment been given to what would seemingly be such a least qualified group of people. Jesus gives to a small group of people this assignment. They are not educated. They don't have political power. They don't have financial clout. These are nobodies. But we are still impacted by the wake of what they launched. 
And the book of Acts that we've been in these last few weeks is revealing the factors that explain the unlimited expansion of the Jesus movement. One of those factors clearly was and still is the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The Jesus movement is a God thing. It is empowered by God. It is fueled by God. God is all over it. And that's part of the reason it became and still exists today a global movement. A second thing that was a factor was they were absolutely convinced that Jesus came back from the dead. And when you believe that the grave has been conquered, you become a hard person to intimidate. And so this movement went and still goes into places where it's not wanted and where it's persecuted. Because it believes that Jesus is raised from the dead. But there's one more reason. Christianity was not just another fad. And that is that it had a message that could not be limited. Not limited by race, not limited by status, not limited by culture, not limited by nationality or heritage, not limited by tradition, not even limited by sin. They had a message that had no boundaries because they preached a gospel of unlimited grace. But they almost didn't. And that brings us to Acts 15, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. The most important church conference ever. Acts 15 is the account of a decision that kept Christianity from being a short-lived fad. Starts in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, Paul was a... Man that could compromise. He could write to different churches. Let's don't fuss about which day is holy and which day isn't. Let's don't fuss about can you eat meat to idols. Let everyone just do what their conscience says. But on this question, he engaged in sharp debate. Because Paul understood the implications for global missions. He understood this is not a question where we can say, well, just whatever you want to think we got to get on the same page on what our gospel is going to be. These guys that came from Jerusalem just didn't go to Antioch. They went up into a place of the world called Galatia, where Paul and Barnabas had just been on their first mission trip. They went to those churches and said the same thing. You're not Christians yet if you haven't been circumcised. Paul fired off a letter to the Galatians. You can read it for yourself. He is one angry rabbi. He makes it clear what he thinks about people who think you've got to get circumcised to be a Christian. But he wants to make it clear in Jerusalem. So he and Barnabas head down there. It says, verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. This is the most important question the church has ever faced. And it's simply this. Is Jesus alone enough? The question is not, can a Gentile become a Christian? The question on the table is, must a Gentile become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Is Jesus enough? Or do they need Jesus plus Moses? Now notice this question is raised by, it says in the text, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. It doesn't say who used to belong. You say, wait a second. Why would you still be a Jew if you became a Christian? Oh, do you understand that becoming a Christian did not make a Jew less Jewish? In some ways it made them more Jewish. I want you to think about what a Pharisee went through to publicly declare faith in Jesus. You're a Pharisee because you treasure your faith. You honor your heritage. And then you hear about this guy named Jesus and he starts blowing your mind because he starts saying things that makes you question everything you've ever been taught. Some of you have been there. You know what this is like. You know what it's like to wrestle with. Did I have, have I believed wrong all this time? But there's one thing you can't get past. They crucified him. And then you become convinced he came back from the dead. And you realized all your life you were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. And if you declare faith in Jesus, it's going to cost you as a Pharisee. You're not going to be a leader in the synagogue anymore. You might get kicked out of your family. You're going to suffer business issues because people aren't going to give you business or you might lose your job. Why would you do this? Because you're a Pharisee and you have gained the most precious thing of all. You're a Messiah. You have found what you've looked for all your life. You are now a fulfilled Jew. In a land full of still expectant Jews. You're not less Jewish. You're more Jewish than ever. You have found your Messiah. Who, by the way, was predicted in the Jewish Scriptures. Who came born of a Jewish woman. Who spoke the Jewish language. Who went to the Jewish synagogue every week. And taught the Jewish Torah. And he kept the Jewish rituals. And he was circumcised like any good Jew. How in your mind can anybody come to Jesus and not know about Moses? How can anybody come to Calvary? And you don't know about Sinai? They're not trying to be troublemakers. In their mind, this is perfect sense. You've got to be a Jew to follow Jesus. But Paul, who, remember, was of the party of the Pharisees, who totally understood where they were coming from, who totally understood how much they had to wrestle to get where they were. Paul understood. 
the devastating implications for global missions if they gave in to these people. Imagine you come to the hills, you go to the new members class, and we say to every guy in class, before you can join our church, you have to have surgery. What would that do to church growth? I'll tell you exactly what it would do. The guy would drive the minivan into the parking lot, let the wife and kids out and say, y'all go to church, I'm going to stay in the car and read the paper. Paul knows this. Because every time we add to the gospel, we subtract its outreach potential. Oh my, I just said a whole lot. You need to ponder that one a second. Every time we add to the gospel... We have just subtracted its outreach potential. It's the most important question the church has ever debated. Peter starts the debate by making an argument from history. It says, verse 7, after much discussion. By the way, this is a miracle. It's the only time in the Bible Peter waited till there was much discussion before he spoke. (laughs) After much discussion. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So what he's doing is reminding them of history. He's bringing up the Cornelius event that we saw in chapter 10 and 11. And what he's saying is, guys, God's already spoken on this. You know the story. You know that God orchestrated that whole Cornelius incident. God sent the visions. God sent them the Spirit. God has already made it clear that what He cares about is the heart, not the flesh. And then Paul takes up the case. Paul makes an argument from ministry. He talks about his first mission trip. He says in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So here's what Paul is saying. If my gospel is wrong, why is the Holy Spirit endorsing it? Paul's saying, when I went into Galatia, I didn't circumcise anybody. I just preached Jesus. And the Holy Spirit showed up. And people are getting saved, and people are getting healed, and miracles are happening. Why is the Holy Spirit endorsing my gospel if my gospel is wrong. It's still a good question. It makes me sad when people attack churches that are reaching lots of lost people. Judge a gospel by its fruit. And then finally James spoke up. Because it doesn't matter if it looks like a work of God, if it doesn't line up with the Word of God. So Peter spoke from history and Paul from ministry. James argues from prophecy. Verse 13, when they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name among the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. Now he goes on to quote primarily from the book of Amos. But he says, this is the consistent message of the prophets. In other words, what James says is, brothers, is it possible that there was something all along in our scripture that we weren't seeing? That all through our scripture, God has a heartbeat for the nations. Remember, Isaiah said we're to be a light to the Gentiles. 
Remember, God sent Jonah to the Ninevites. Let's go all the way back to the father of our people, Abraham. What was the promise? I will bless all the nations through you. James is saying, brothers, it's always been there. We just didn't see it till now. It was always God's plan to bring in all the nations the way they are. Now, remember, what is at stake here is the very essence of the gospel. When we go to other countries or when we just go across the street, is our message Jesus only? Or is it Jesus mostly? And Peter summed it up. The last words of Peter in Acts are his best. Verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. These are the words that unleashed the unlimited mission of God. Because here's the conclusion the church reached. Leave Jesus alone, alone. It's not the preaching of Jesus that limits the experience of His reign in the world. It is the preaching of Jesus plus something else that creates barriers. And so many of the things that we tend to add to the gospel, just like circumcision in their day, are not bad things. In fact, they can be very good things and they mean a lot to us and we want to hold on to them. See, what happens is when you come to faith, you tend to make whatever form that brought you to faith So precious, you think everybody has got to come to faith that way. And so you idolize the form that brought you to faith when that form isn't always transportable. It might have made perfect sense in one place. But it becomes a barrier in another place. And sometimes what is outside of your comfort zone is not outside of the gospel. See, I I remember wrestling business the very first time I went to what we would call the mission field. Now, I I, kind of hesitate to say mission field because the whole world's a mission field. Tarrant County's a mission field. But the first time I went to another nation that spoke another language, I recall visiting the missionary. And he and his sweet family had labored in this land for many years. And all they had to show was a very, very small group of believers. And we went to worship with them. And all the men had on suits, even though nobody in that culture wore suits. And we sat down in rows. And we passed out hymnals. Where songs written by Englishmen from the 1600s had been translated with four-part harmony. A music style nobody in that culture understood or practiced. 
And everyone sat very, very still, even though in that culture you always moved around when you sang. And I remember for the first time in my life thinking, what is happening here? And a couple of years later, that discouraged family left. And they went home and told their supporting church something like, we tried. But that culture is just not open to the gospel. And many people get labeled as not open to the gospel. When the truth is, they can't get to the gospel. Because so many barriers were put in the way. I want you to look at one of the most important verses in the New Testament. In chapter 15, here's what James says, verse 19. It is my judgment then, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James, who was circumcised, who lived in a land of circumcision, said, I get it. I understand your pain. I know this is outside your comfort zone. But the mission has got to trump our tradition. And every generation of the church must make that same decision. That we are not going to make it difficult for people to turn to God. And we do that. By keeping the message of grace in the right place. By making sure that we are preaching a gospel of unlimited grace. But what happens is we tend to limit grace. We don't mean to. But it happens. We limit grace first when we focus on the insider over the outsider. Just like they were tempted to do in Acts 15. You see, most churches are birthed out of a genuine passion to see lost people come to Christ. But the church grows. And the need to care for and take care of the people who are in the church increases. And almost inevitably, the passion For the outsider wanes. Because the needs of the insiders have become so large. You know what? Let me just put it more blunt than that. Lost people don't send me emails. You know what I mean by that? When people send me emails who are concerned about church, they're insiders. And I don't mean their emails are bad or ugly or, or that I don't want them. I just mean lost people don't write and say, this makes it hard for me to come to God. And so inevitably, leaders and elders and pastors start focusing on who they do hear from. And without even realizing it, our focus has come on the insider and not the outside. Let me explain it this way. If you've ever watched soccer... You know, there's a thing called the penalty kick or the free kick. They put that ball down just 12 yards from the net, and that's 24 feet wide. That professional soccer kicker can kick that ball up to 80 miles an hour. It's almost impossible to stop this kick. 
professional soccer players make it 85% of the time. But maybe you know at the end of a game, if it's tied, they'll have what they call uh, uh, a shootout. Five players from each team will get to do this free kick. Now, you're the last, you're number five. You're the last one to kick. If your team is behind by a goal, and you have to make it to tie, or your team loses, the odds of your making go down to 62%. But if your team is tied, and if you kick it in, your team wins, your odds of making it go up to 92%. A 30% difference. Are you kicking to win? Or are you kicking not to lose? I get calls every week from churches. We're dying. We're stagnant. We're not growing. Please help. What do we need to do? Here's what I've learned. Almost always, they're operating more out of a fear of who they might lose then they are a burden for who they need to win. Does how I want church to be trump how church needs to be to reach those who are still far from God? You see, one of the things I love about our church, because we're an anomaly, churches as old as this church shouldn't be growing. Shouldn't be baptizing hundreds of people a year. But one of the things I love about us is that I've seen us over the years get outside of our comfort zone and address several things that were difficulties for lost people. We've changed um, the name of our church. We've changed our strategy to be multi-site. We have changed uh, the way we worship and use music. Uh, We have changed the way women are involved. And by the way, none of these changes were outside of the gospel. But many of them were outside of our comfort zones. And I tell you who I've learned to appreciate in our church more than any people group. It's everyone in our church over 70. Here's why. They get grace. Because most of the people in our church over 70 attend a church who does a number of things that they didn't grow up with, that made them uncomfortable. They got outside their comfort zone for the sake of the people that aren't here yet. So when you see somebody, when you see somebody today that is over 70, I want you to go and punch them in the arm and say, thank you for getting grace. Don't punch them hard, they'll fall over. But you go and you thank them. See, one of the things that we will never change at our church, we'll take communion every week. You know why? Communion is God's way to say to the church, remember, it's all about Jesus. Keep the focus on Jesus. And the other thing communion does is remind us there's always room at the table for the people who aren't here yet. But all who were invited must acknowledge Their need for grace. You see, the second way churches tend to limit grace is they focus on the outside over the inside. That's exactly what was happening in Acts 15. In their day, it was Pharisees who had had become Christians. In our day, it's Christians who are trying to become Pharisees.
What's the appeal of add-on religion? Simple. Focus on external conformity is easier than focus on internal transformation. It is easier for me to keep a rule than it is for me to let Jesus rule my heart. And so we come up with rules that add to the gospel. And here's what happens. When we add rules to the gospel, inevitably, we produce unlimited self-righteousness. Well, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do, and I don't drink, and I didn't vote for them, so clearly, I am a better Christian than you are. We produce unlimited self-righteousness, unlimited division, because as soon as we make our rule that we think you ought to keep, we find out you have a rule that I don't want to keep. And we fight about rules. We don't fight about Jesus. And most of all, we produce unlimited hypocrisy. Did you hear about the two judges? They both got arrested for speeding. They didn't want to call the state Supreme Court to send a judge. They agreed they would just try each other. So the first judge takes the bench. The second judge says, I was speeding. And the judge on the bench says, uh, case dismissed, no fine, no penalty. Then they swap places. And the second judge says, I was guilty of speeding. And the judge at the bench said, $250 fine and court cost. And the first judge is furious and I forgave you all your penalty. Why'd you do that to me? And the second judge says, it's the second case you've had like this day. Someone's got to do something about all this speeding around here. <laughs> okay, here's the point. We make rules that we don't even keep ourselves. And we set ourselves up for such charge of hypocrisy. Look at what Peter said in chapter uh, 15, verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? In other words, he's saying, guys, we don't even keep the rules. We're going to put that on them? You see, when you create a culture of religious performance, you inevitably create a culture... Of religious appearance. Now I suddenly have to put on a show that I'm doing all the things that the culture says I'm supposed to do. I have a friend that used to preach in a college town. He invited a young boy and his date over for lunch on Sunday. And he kept trying to get the young college man to take his jacket off, but he wouldn't do it. And finally the boy pulled him aside and explained that old trick that some of us remember from college, he had ironed his collar and his cuffs. That's all part of the shirt he had ironed. He didn't want to take his coat off because he didn't want the girl to know what a slob he was. And that's what religion will do. It'll get you to iron the parts that show. When in fact, there's a whole lot of crud in your life that you're not dealing with. Because religion just deals with the outside. It doesn't deal with the inside. So can I be real blunt? The biggest difficulty lost people have in coming to God is all the church people they know 
who act like they've got it all together. But it's just on the outside. So, I know right now, I'm talking to people in this room and online. And you're checking us out. You don't even know if you buy this whole Jesus thing. But you see all these people, and they look like they got it all together. So I'm going to tell you the truth. This room is full of messed up, jacked up, screwed up people. And we don't think the good news is we can be saved. Every religion teaches you can get saved. We believe the good news is that we are saved by grace. And that Jesus didn't say, go fix yourself. But Jesus said, it is finished. And when we trust Him only for salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in and starts to transform us from the inside out to start to look more like Jesus. We don't have to perform We don't have to pretend. We just have to proclaim and believe. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. We keep coming back to this. We never get away from this. It is our foundation. It is our clarion call. It is the essence of what binds us together as a people. It is the message that the early church took to the whole world. And listen, church, it is the only message that can still go to the whole world. It is an unlimited gospel. See, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. We are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus can reach you. It doesn't matter what your nationality or your ethnicity is or your gender. We are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus can reach you. It doesn't matter what your political persuasion is, what your economic status is, what your education level is. And it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your flaws are. It doesn't matter what your hidden sins are. We are saved. By the grace of the Lord Jesus can reach you. So, almost 200 years ago, a man named Caesar Milan went to visit some friends in Brighton, England. His host had a daughter named Charlotte. Caesar witnessed to her. She seemed disturbed, but she came back the next day and said, I, I hear what you say about Jesus. But there's too much in my life to clean up to become a Christian. And Caesar Milan said to her, Charlotte, you don't need to clean up anything. You can come to Jesus just as you are. Just as you are. And she did. And she wrote a song. Just as I am. Without a plea except your blood was shed for me. And that you bid me to come to thee. Jesus did not make it difficult for people to get saved. You can come just as you are. It doesn't matter your race, your gender, your politics, your ethnicity, or your past. You can come 
just as you are. And the potential of who Jesus can help you become is unlimited. Bow your heads with me, please. God, I'm praying today that you would give us all a fresh understanding, a renewed passion, and an increased wonder at the gospel of grace. Ground us deep, God. Root us deep in the gospel of grace. And cause us to give our money, our time, and our words. Because there is no place that this news cannot go. For Jesus' sake, amen.